Well, again, welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. And as we said earlier, we're so glad that you are here this morning. Again, my name's George Olmstead, and I do serve as one of the pastors here on staff. And I have the privilege of sharing God's Word with you this morning. And uh, Pastor Grant, he will be back in the pulpit next week. And so uh, we're excited to have him uh, be back uh, teaching again. Uh, this morning, we continue in our series. It's entitled Life Lessons from the Gospel of Luke How to Know Jesus as the Lord of Your Life. And, and this has been a, a great series reminding us as believers to, to live out our life according to Christ's call upon it. Our sermon text this morning is Luke chapter. 15. And so while you turn there, let me just ask you this question. Have you ever lost something valuable? You know, it could be an heirloom. It could be of something of sentimental value. It could be uh, something of great importance needed to accomplish a task. I personally uh, have never really owned anything of great um, wealth, valuable enough that if I were to lose it, I would feel distraught if I were to never find it. However, there is uh, one thing that I did lose that was very special, and it, and it really bothered me that I was not able to recover it. So way back in 2003, October 25th to be specific, Sarah and I were married. We, we celebrate uh, 20 years this October. It's going to be pretty cool. And anyways, after the ceremony and reception, Sarah and I headed from Wichita Falls to Dallas to catch an early morning flight to Playa del Carmen, and, and we made the trip, and our honeymoon was going great. I mean, excellent, better than I could ever imagine. Just had a wonderful time until that fateful afternoon. We had rented a Sea-Doo, and we had an awesome time riding in the Gulf and having just a blast, and we got back to the room to get ready for the evening to go to dinner, and, and it was in that moment I began to have a panic attack. My head was sweating, my heart was racing, and I was about to have to tell Sarah something that I never wanted to tell her. So I called her into the room and I asked her this question. So have you seen my wedding ring? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah, somebody got it. That's right. Been married less than a week and I'd lost my wedding ring. Woo, Sarah and I uh, concluded that it must have just flew off my finger during the Sea-Doo adventure, didn't really have time to get it fitted well, I guess, or just got wet, I don't know, but we were both very, very disappointed and, and even more upset, and, and for some of you are thinking, well, not really that big a deal, you probably just got home and bought another one, you're right, I, I, I went and bought the exact same kind of ring, but, but to this day, it still bothers me that the ring Sarah placed on my finger and held onto when she recited our vows is not the same ring that I'm wearing today. That ring is the most valuable item I have ever lost due to its emotional and sentimental value. Well, maybe you have a similar story or, or maybe you have lost something more valuable in your life. I, I wish I could have found that ring, but it's, it's lost forever. And, and there's hurt and there's disappointment when you can't find something you lost. But on the other hand, there is such joy when you find something you've lost. Whether it's small or it's big, there's that excitement, that's their exuberation of like, man, I, f I found what I was looking for. And you, you run and you go tell people about it. Many times someone in your family, if it's something of greater value, it's, it's friends and, and, and your circle of influence. But there's a joy that comes when we find something that we have lost. Well, this morning, we're going to look at the joy that it's uh, to be had when one who is lost 
is found. We're going to emphasize that joy is found in salvation through Jesus Christ. And you've probably by now found your place in Luke 15. So let us begin to read our text. And it starts in verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Well, let's set the scene very quickly we have tax collectors, we have sinners, we have Pharisees, we have scribes, and they're, they're all gathered around Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus had made a habit of being in the presence of sinners and tax collectors throughout his ministry. As a matter of fact, if you recall, uh, he actually called Matthew, a, a tax collector, to become a fisher of men. And, and he had just finished in Luke 14 describing heaven as a place for the poor, the cripple, the blind, and the lame. And, and so at this point, the religious crowd that had gathered included the Pharisees and the scribes. Man, they've simply had enough. And in and, and living out their religion, they avoided being seen with the sinner and with the tax collector. As a matter of fact, in verse 2, we see how disgusted they were with Jesus when Luke tells us, that the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Listen, they they felt Jesus should avoid these people just as they did. Uh, They felt due to the reputation of the sinners and the tax collectors that it would ruin Jesus and and it would even make him unclean. Remember, the Pharisees were were huge on keeping every law as close as they could and making sure they didn't didn't break and and they definitely didn't want to become unclean or be seen as unclean. And and that's where the perspective is that they're coming from. And, And Jesus, once again, he finds himself in an environment in which he's being followed by every kind of of person. The hated tax collector, the Pharisee, and everyone in between. And as we've discovered through our study in the book of Luke, Jesus finds himself with the opportunity to teach God's perspective, to teach God's truth, and to teach that, uh, and to correct those who are living according to their man-made religion instead of by the faith and truth in the one true God. Now, Jesus, what I love about him and throughout all the gospel, he always takes advantage of the opportunity to share truth and to correct those who are wrong. As we journey through our text, here's what's going to happen. We're going to come upon three different parables that work hand in hand, allowing Jesus to get his point across. His point being, and listen to this, is that every person matters. And when a person repents and places their faith and trust in Jesus, there's this great rejoicing that takes place in heaven, just as it should here on earth. Now, Jesus is going to do this. He's going to drive home this point that when the spiritually lost is found, there is joy in this salvation and there is reason to celebrate. So let's continue reading what Luke has to tell us through Jesus. Uh, Jesus, here's what he does. He's set, we've set the scene. Now Jesus is going to preach the parable. In verse 3 it reads, So he told them this parable saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. 
I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. We see the parable of lost sheep. It's important for us to understand that in this parable of the lost sheep, Jesus, he's not focused or concerned about the 99 being left alone. Instead, he is a shepherd that is, he talks about the shepherd pursuing the lost sheep. He wants it to be understood that the shepherd will pursue that one lost sheep until it is found. Now, if you remember from our first sermon in this series, Jesus is on mission. That what happened? The Son of God, he left heaven to become flesh, to walk on this earth amongst his creation, and, and to point mankind to the Father. So in doing this, he would become the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the world, allowing redemption and restoration to be possible for those who believe. So he pursued, and listen this morning, he is still pursuing the lost. Now, the Pharisees would understand the rejoicing of finding the lost sheep. However, they would not understand the rejoicing of the sinner or the tax collector being seen as worthy of salvation, nor would they rejoice if they came to know God through it. Therefore, Jesus emphasizes the celebration of finding the lost sheep, and he, and he makes a very pointed statement when he says there will be more joy in heaven over one person who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. You see, the Pharisees, here's the deal, they, they would never count themselves in need of repentance. Why? Because in their self-righteousness, they kept the law perfectly. They were doing the best. They were better than anybody else. And you know what? We're fine how we are. How dare you say we must repent. Jesus wanted to make it very clear. Rejoicing takes place in heaven over the repentant sinner. And the Pharisees should as well. You see, Jesus continues, he wants to make sure that they're understanding this with another short parable to reiterate his point. Luke continues to write, and, and we come upon now the parable of the lost coin. We pick up in verse 8, or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, some scholars believe that this woman's coin was valuable to her in the same way that, that my wedding ring is valuable to me. The, this coin was held with several other coins on a, on a silver chain and is worn around the head as a mark of a married woman. This is what made the coin valuable and precious. And the loss of it is why we see there's such an emotional response. She quickly and hurriedly takes out the lamp. She lights it and she begins to go over every inch of the house with the broom. And it takes a moment, but at some point she finds her lost coin. Just like the shepherd searched for the lost sheep until it was found, the woman 
searches for the lost coin until it is found. Man, by her reaction, you'd think that she'd hit the lottery over this one coin. She, she called for a celebration amongst her neighbors and her friends. This was a big deal. Now Jesus had those listening primed for correction. The Pharisees would agree that there is reason to rejoice over finding money or finding a thing. But Jesus, again, he becomes very intentional when he states, in the same way, I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Listen, the Pharisees and the scribes, they had to be seeing red at this point. Why is Jesus continuously talking about repenting? Why is Jesus emphasizing the angels rejoicing? And here's the thing. They knew exactly why in the depths of their heart. They would never rejoice over a sinner, especially the tax collector, repenting and receiving salvation. It just was not going to happen on their watch. But, but Jesus wants them to understand when the lost person is found, when they repent and are saved, the entirety of heaven rejoices. Again, we see rejoicing takes place in heaven over the repentant sinner. Luke 19.10 tells us that Jesus on mission for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Isaiah 62.5 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with the shouts of joy. This is not a, a, a talked about characteristic of God very much about he is not only joyful but he rejoices he rejoices when his very good creation repents and is redeemed and is reconciled to him he rejoices over his people as they grow and mature and continuously repent of sin against him so we see the shepherd pursued the lost sheep until it was found the the woman searched for the lost coin until it was found, and God does the same. He sent his son to seek and to save that which was lost, and the Pharisees needed to be reminded that pious, self-righteous religion was the reason they refused to rejoice when the sinner was redeemed. And church, we want to make sure that we are not acting out as the Pharisees, that we don't approach one's salvation with this, really them? Seriously, God? Or, well, I don't really know if that was true profession from them. Listen, our job is to rejoice when a sinner repents and comes to know Jesus as Savior. That's it. We don't do the saving. We have no clue if God has saved that person or not. But he does. And you know what's awesome? Is we get to rejoice alongside them. Yes, we need to be careful of easy believism. Yes, we need to be careful of false professions. But that is between them and the Lord. And as the church, we should be excited, joyful, not just acting like, well, just another day, another thing, somebody got saved. I don't know about you, but it sure wasn't like that when I got saved. It was a life changed 
a life redeemed. The lost had been found. So we want to continue this morning as Luke continues. He writes as Jesus provides a different perspective with the same desired life lesson. Let's pick back up in Luke 15, verse 11, and here's what it reads. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. So we now come to the parable of the lost son, or better known as the prodigal son. And, and we, are, we are quickly introduced to three characters in this parable. The father and two sons, one younger, one older. And so we see the lost son, the younger son, right out of the bat in this story, he requests his inheritance. And we see in verse 12, the younger son in requesting his share of the inheritance. Now, we're not told why, but, but he wants his inheritance and he wants it now. He is ready to get on his life away from his father, away from his, fr- uh, from his family. And, and here's the deal. His father actually grants his request. As we now see in verse 13, after the request is granted, this young son responds with riotous living. And not many days later, in verse 13, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. The younger son did not heed good stewardship as we learned about last week. He went on a spending free. He, he didn't forecast the famine. He didn't forecast his inheritance wouldn't allow him every desire that he craved. It eventually ran out. He spent all of his inheritance the scripture says he, he, he spent it through loose living. And the older son's going to explain for us what that looks like later. So the younger son, now out of money, what is he to do? Well, in verse 14, we pick up and we see the younger son realize his plight. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, I would underline that. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I, I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Boy, the younger son has lived a life at riotous living. It's all about himself, selfishness, and he goes out and he pleases the flesh. And, and we learn very quickly that that type of living leads to destruction. So he does this, he goes and he gets a job, he, he takes whatever job he can find, and, and, and he is a Jew, and, and the job lands him in a place that causes him to go against his religious practices. Leviticus eleven seven tells us, yet the swine is unclean to you. And where does the young son find himself? Feeding the pigs. And here's the deal. This guy is so hungry that he begins to desire to eat what he is feeding the pigs. But here's the deal. He has no authority to eat that food or that slop or whatever you feed a pig. 
And so as he's fattening the pigs, he himself is starving. This young son finds himself at rock bottom. He's absolutely has, he has nothing going for him. Many, many of us in this room have, have found ourselves in a place like this. And for some, this is when we came to our understanding of needing a savior, needing a rescuer, needing a redeemer. The passage tells us that he came to his senses. I'm sure many of us would love if the world would come to its senses today, would we not? But even more importantly, I am thankful there was a time in my life that I came to my senses. Recognizing at 17 that I was in need of a Savior. And in this parable, the younger son not only realizes his plight, but in coming to his senses, he's reminded of his father. And he makes plans to go to him to repent and ask to take on the life of a hired servant. This right here is the most pivotal and important moment in this young son's life. He's ready to admit that he has sinned against the father. He's ready to repent. He's ready to follow his father, even if it is as a hired servant. And so we see in verse 20 that he returns to his father. So he got up and came to his father. And it is very important to mention here that he didn't just think about going to the father. He didn't just make a plan out and then scratch it out. No, he actually did what he needed to do. He finds himself in a moment of desperation, which has led to humility. Because in verse 21, we see that he goes to the father and repented of his sin. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Here is the coolest thing about this. When we feel we are the least worthy is when we are the humblest and we are most likely to repent and desire to be made right with the Father. Boy, that that repentance of understanding where we missed the mark. Where we find ourselves saying, man, if I keep going this direction, there is no hope. There is no answer. There is just destruction after destruction after destruction. And in that repentance, he actually has to turn and go where? Go back to the Father. That's a beautiful picture of what repentance is. The non-believer repenting of his sin, turning away from his flesh in the world and, and going to the Father. For the believer in our salvation, our sanctification, that, that repentance when we miss the mark of, of turning our back against the sin that has got us captive when we've already been freed from it and going back to the Father. Repentance is a beautiful part of the Christian faith. It's a beautiful part of our relationship with God. And God thought it worthy enough to send his son as the sacrifice for our sins so that we might be reconciled to and redeemed by him. God sees you worthy of his salvation. We don't see ourselves worthy, and we we really aren't. But for some reason, God sees 
us as worthy of that. Listen, you are precious in his sight. You have value. You have purpose created by and in him. George, how can you say this? Well, let's look at the rest of verse 20 as, as we are reintroduced to the youngest son's father. The father received his lost son. Read with me in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Listen, y'all, the father has been waiting for this moment. And based on this reaction, it would be safe to assume that father had been taking time each day to gaze down that road every day since his son had left. Just hoping, just wondering, is he going to come back? And when he sees him, he feels compassion for him. This ties in, as we remember the story of the Good Samaritan, he felt compassion. The father felt this, a deep yearning to grant mercy and kindness and love. And he embraced him and he kissed him. Why does scripture use that? Listen, the father wanted to leave no doubt in his young son's mind. He is valued, he is loved, he has been missed, and he has been longed for. And he is welcomed back. But not only did the father receive his lost son, he rejoiced over his lost son. But the father said in verse 22 to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and let us celebrate for this son of mine was dead and has come to life and he was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Listen, there was a celebration that took place like no other celebration. The celebration with the the neighbors and the family of finding the sheep and the coin, finding those two things, in no way compares to the finding of a lost son. And Jesus reiterated over and over again throughout these three parables, heaven does this, heaven rejoices when the lost sinner repents and is found and restores their relationship with the Father. Listen, God is the God of grace. He's the God of forgiveness, and he is the God of restoration. The father in this parable received his son. He rejoiced over his son being found, and then he restores his son back into relationship. Think about this. He puts a robe on him and restores his purity. He puts a ring on his finger and restores his authority and position in the family. He puts sandals on his feet and restores his dignity. He put food in his stomach and restored his satisfaction and met his need. He brought him inside, restoring the intimacy between father and son. He celebrated with him and restored his joy. What is lacking in lives of those who do not believe? It's joy that can only be found in the Lord. A joy that only comes through salvation. A joy in the midst of circumstances that seem miserable and they will never be overcome, yet there's this joy that God puts within us through the power of his spirit that we know that God has loved us enough to save us and one day we will be in his presence forever and ever. The father grants him grace 
and forgiveness, restoring his relationship. As good as this parable is so far, Jesus still needed to drive his point home. And in doing so, he he reintroduces the older son who received the news about the younger son. And we see that in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. Did you get those key words? Received back. How does the older son respond upon this news? He is not running to give a hug and a kiss, I can tell you that. As a matter of fact, Luke tells us that he responds with anger. But he became angry. He was not willing to go in. His father came out and began pleading with him. He was angry because the younger son was received back. I didn't share this with the first service, but I'll share it with you. There was a point early on in my ministry, I was single, I was serving on church staff, and I don't know, I was 23, 24, 25, somewhere around there, and my my brother, my middle brother was 21, and he was just going through a phase of life that was kind of similar to the destruction that we see by the prodigal son, And, and, and I found myself as the older son in this passage angry that my parents would still love him and support him in ways that, hey, listen, I'm doing everything right, and you love me well, I appreciate that, but, but man, what is, what is he doing over there, and you're just letting it go? Little did I know the, the prayers, the hurt, the pain, the desire to help a son who really didn't desire to be helped, I've experienced the older son moment, and I, and I would bet there would be others in this room that in different circumstances are the same. You've, you may have experienced it as well. And, and, and who's the older son representing here in this parable? It's, it's the Pharisee. I'm so thankful my, my, my brother has, had grown out of that and has, has come back in great relationship with our family. But, man, I, I understand what this responding with anger is all about. It, it really comes from this, this idea of like, you've got to be kidding me. It's like, it's like nothing's happened. All is forgiven and all is well. What, what about me? And the older son continues to respond with self-righteousness. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours, yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, that loose living, you killed the fatted calf for him. Hey, listen, Dad, I've done everything right. You've never rewarded me. You're okay with my brother squandering his inheritance on prostitutes? Seriously, Dad? Where's my goat? Remember, it's, it's important that Jesus is talking directly to the Pharisee and the scribes who had grumbled as to why he would eat with the sinners and tax collectors. And, and their attitude and response is exactly that of the older son. And church, we want to make sure as well, as a, as a, a body of Christ... But that we don't get the older son attitude. 
of, I, I, I saw that person used to come around here and well, they went off and left to live a life that's just riotous and loose. And now they're back. I mean, seriously, Jesus, come on. You know what? The church finds itself there, unfortunately. I pray that Fellowship Bible will be a church that receives the older, the younger son when he comes back. That we love them, that we hold them accountable, that we, we share joy with them. But here's what happens. The father reminds the older son in verse 31. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. He reminds him of his right. Son, I do see your faithfulness. I do see your obedience. And remember, all that I have, it's yours. So, so calm down. You are rewarded as well. However, your attitude is not where it should be. As a matter of fact, it reminds him his attitude should be one of rejoicing because we see that in verse 32. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. Listen, son, the correct response is joy and celebration. And here's why. It's such a powerful teaching moment for the crowd, but, but an even more powerful life lesson for the Pharisees. We rejoice and celebrate because the dead is alive. For his brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. Remember Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you are a believer today, you have once been dead but now are alive. Why would we not desire that for the person sitting next to us or the person we come across in this world who seems like, man, that's never going to happen? Oh, but God, if you would, if you would, bring them to you. Let us rejoice and celebrate that the lost, that the dead has begun to live. And the very last part of verse 32, we rejoice because your brother was lost and now he is found. Jesus ends all three pairs was rejoicing over the lost being found. The Pharisees were good with the sheep and the coin, but the person, hold on a second, Jesus. Salvation in heaven isn't for everyone, Jesus. Now listen, we know the truth. That without repentance and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there is no eternal life. Instead, without repentance is a life lived separated from God for all eternity. So the Pharisees aren't wrong. It's not, it's not for, not everyone will be there. But what they're wrong about is their attitude of, Jesus, how can these sinners and tax collectors have any hope of a relationship with God. <laughs> Jesus simply answers, because of me. Jesus was fulfilling his mission. In Luke 15, he takes one more step on his journey towards the cross at Calvary. And in doing so, he reminds those listening, rejoicing takes place in heaven over the repentant sinner. So our life lesson 
we take with us is vital in allowing us to know Jesus is the Lord of our life. Here's the life lesson from Luke this morning. God pursues the lost. And you and I as believers should as well. Again, we don't save anyone. But we could be used by the Lord to simply plant a seed of whom God is and that he loves and desires the sinner to repent. God pursues the lost. Listen, he's pursuing you. God receives the repentant sinner. And you and I as believers should as well. God pursues, but God is also waiting for you. Church, let us be a, an individual in a body that, man, when the repentant sinner gives his life to Christ, we're right there, the first one to high-five and to hug. You don't have to kiss. But to do and say, listen, welcome to the family. Let's help you grow in this newfound faith. But also, God rejoices when the lost is found, and you and I as believers should as well. He pursues. He's waiting for you. He will rejoice with you. Boy, isn't that the greatest thing the church here on earth could be doing while we wait to be in heaven with Christ is rejoicing when the lost is found. So, Sarah and I, it's no... Y'all know that we lived in California for about six and a half, seven years. And uh, so every time somebody came out, man, they, they want to do all the tourist things, right? And, and that's fine. We, we enjoyed doing some of those things. Uh, but we wound up in uh, outside the Chinese theater downtown Hollywood. And so if you've ever been there, it's just, uh, it's just tons and tons of people. Like you really can barely move. And so we get there, and it's me, Sarah, Sarah's mom, Sarah's stepdad, me, uh, uh, my, my, my kids, and my mom and dad. Pretty sure that's who all was there. Well, we're, we're going, man. Here we go. We're down the stairs. We're going out. We're about to in, exit out. We, we all look down, and, and we, we cannot find Thaddeus. Like, we cannot find him. He's no taller than my knee probably at that time. I mean, he's just gone. What sets in? Sheer panic. Oh, my goodness. Where's my son? This is Hollywood. This is California. Like, what in the world? Will we ever find him? And so we begin asking people, hey, have you seen him? Have you seen him? And we're walking around, and, and, and we do this. It seemed like an eternity. It was probably 45 seconds a minute. I don't know, but it seemed like forever. And I happened to be walking. Down, I went and walk, started walking down the street, and lo and behold, Thaddeus at the time, little, little old boy, sitting at the feet of Spider-Man. <laughs> just, just doing his Spider-Man stuff with him. There are two reactions that happen as a parent in that moment. The first reaction is, I, am, I, I want to really discipline strongly in this moment that he left my side. As a matter of fact, I don't really care who's watching. But then there's another feeling that my lost son has been found. And I want to grab him, hold him, hug him, kiss him. Hey, buddy, don't ever do that again. But listen, I'm so glad we found you. You see, here's the deal. That was not a moment for discipline. That was a moment for receiving my lost son. Folks, how are we acting as believers in the church? Are we Pharisees? 
Are we rejoicing that the lost can still be found? Psalm 35, 9. And my soul shall rejoice in the Lord. It shall exult in his salvation. Let us pray. God, we love you. We're thankful for your word and the truth of your word. We're thankful that we can look at parables and see that you love us in spite of us. And so, God, we want to praise you this morning that your salvation still goes forth. We want to ask this morning for that person who who might have been seeking, who has been wrestling with this idea of submitting their life to you and repenting and placing their faith and trust with you. God, if there's one here this morning that, that desires relationship with you, and I pray that they answer your call this morning. They'll simply believe in their heart that you died, were buried, and rose from the dead. That they'll confess with their mouth that you are Lord. And Lord, they'll admit that they are a sinner by repenting and coming to you. For the believer this morning, God, we're encouraged that no way should we look like the Pharisee. But instead, we should be sitting at the feet of Jesus. We should be learning how to love others, how to serve others, how to rejoice in the God-sized moments. Lord, let us be that person. Let us be that church so that you are glorified in all things. We love you, Jesus. Amen. We're going to ask you to stand.